The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 15-17 Behold the lavishness of God providing for our physical needs. Earlier we were told that God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now we're told that they're almost all for us, with divine endorsement. Look at all of the plants yielding seed. Behold, every tree bearing fruit. Beautiful, aren't they? That's why I gave them to you. That's why I gave you eyes, to see such beautiful sights. Wait until you taste them. It'll be a party in your mouth. You may eat of every one of them. All of them are yours for food, except one. There's only one no in this world full of yes, and even it is temporary. Eat, drink, and be merry. If we extend this divine endorsement of sight and taste, then here we see God enthusiastically endorsing our joy and delight in all sensible pleasures. That is, pleasures we receive through our bodily senses. Pleasures that we see, smell, taste, touch, and hear. Provided they are enjoyed within the boundaries established by the giver of every good gift. Perhaps God could have done it another way. He might have made an immaterial world populated by purely spiritual beings. Infinite wisdom preferred stomachs and tongues and every combination of sour, sweet, bitter, salty, and savory that the chefs on the Food Network can discover. Because that's what they are doing, discovering all the ways that God chose to communicate His goodness, His sweetness, even His bitterness to human palates. My guess is that'll take a while. The creation of food, tongues, and the human digestive system is the product of infinite wisdom knitting the world together in a harmonious whole. The symphony of glory that sounds from the triune being contains notes of corn salsa and sour patch kids, of sweet tea and rye bread, the kind that fills the belly. A variety of tastes creates categories and gives us edible images of divine things. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Our sense of hunger and thirst are divinely designed to highlight the soul's hunger for spiritual food. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And there's no shortcut, apart from our experience of empty stomachs and parched throats, of full bellies, quenched thirsts, and the incredible variety of taste, our spiritual lives would be impoverished, and we would have no real vocabulary for spiritual desire, no mental and no emotional framework for engaging with God. So then the provision and supply of food and drink, along with the corresponding senses and systems to receive them bodily, are a gift from God a testimony to his approval of our finitude and embodiment. Excerpts from The Things of Earth by Joe Rigney. Welcome back to Bright Hearth. Lexi, I think we can all agree, nailed it on that reading (laughs) in our bedroom, which is quite dim in the evening, dear listener. And she did not have her glasses. glasses And I I said, I said, Lexi, do you want me to go get your glasses? (laughs) She said, no, no, I've got this. And Hmm. technically she did. (laughs) Technically. Oh man, no, I'm embarrassed. No, you're good. I can see. I have a hard time seeing the lines as individuals. She 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 really should not be allowed to drive without glasses on. My my eyesight's not that bad. They told me it's not that bad. I'm like, how do people with bad eyesight yeah. do things? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Anyways. It was great. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Bright Hearth. My name is Brian Sauvé, here with my lovely wife, Lexi. 
And we are, in this season of Bright Hearth, focused on recovering the lost arts and disciplines of the productive and fruitful Christian household, the lost arts of homemaking. And we have, uh, in this season, we're walking through the rooms of the house and, and talking about what duties we have before the Lord in each of those rooms, and also what privileges and blessings and joys. And we've finally arrived uh, in the room where I think we're going to spend between five and 65 episodes, which is <laughs> the kitchen. Because wouldn't you say, Lexi, we spend um, mm-hmm. a, a lot of the time of our lives at this moment in this time of this season with five children is spent in the kitchen? Yes, Absolutely. Would you say, what is one of your favorite things to do in in the world? (laughs) Cook for you, my lord. (laughs) I made her practice that. I'm just just kidding. In fact, today I got home from work, and we were cooking some burgers, and they were delicious, but uh, the entire time, not only were we in the kitchen... Everybody was rolling around on the the floor, wrestling under our feet, trying to trip us. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they just they determined that the best place to wrestle. I've got two hot cast iron pans with burgers in them. Lexi's cutting up different things for burgers and preparing other stuff. And they determined that the best place in the entire home, the entire 0.55 acres of land with our house on it to wrestle was the rug directly under the stove. Mm-hmm. So that if any splatters of hot oil came down, they, they would it. fall on the one year old and the two year old. And the five-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old. I can't keep track anymore. (laughs) Yes. So we spend a lot of time in the kitchen. I'm sure you can relate. If you're a listener to this show, you probably spend a lot of time in the kitchen or enjoying the fruits of the kitchen. And so we will be spending some time here. I I joked about 65 episodes, not quite that long, but we'll be spending, you know, at least a good handful of episodes here in the kitchen because there is just so much that uh, uh, so many of the lost arts of homemaking are born and come out of the kitchen, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in our day and age, when we say lost arts and disciplines, we really are talking about lost arts yeah. in the and kitchen. food is one of the most basic ways to care for people. So if you have a lot of people in your household, then, yeah, you have to get pretty good at just caring for their basic needs. <laughs> You're going to be cooking a lot. Mm-hmm. And one of the things when we talk about productive households, a through line through the season is that many of these arts and disciplines of homemaking in the household are things that make you less dependent upon you know, enormously long supply chains, less dependent upon having somebody else do all of the work for you, and more able to start with raw ingredients, some of these glories that God has made in his world, and through your own dominion-taking effort, turn them into glorious food and glorious nourishment for your people. So we'll talk very practically in the next episodes in the kitchen about some of the skills and knowledge that we believe you should work to recover, uh, and that we've been working to recover in our own kitchen, that Lexi has been working hard to recover in our kitchen, and that we've been blessed by as a family, kitchen management. Some of you have many children. Uh, as you've uh, you know, chimed in on Patreon and different platforms, you've told us how many children you have, and y- you know, usually we don't feel like we have a few, like like we're the minority, like we have the small family, but some oh, of really? you... Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah, we've, That's had cool. A, we've had plenty of seven and That's eight and awesome. nine kid families. 
joining in on Patreon. So welcome. Ooh. And we're going to talk about kitchen management and hospitality and all sorts of things. But today, to really set the stage for all of our time in the kitchen, what we wanted to talk about was one of these curious features of the world that God made. And that is that he designed a world with human beings set at the pinnacle who would need to eat. And they would need to eat often, like three times a day for the normal person. If you're Ira, <laughs> my eight plus six year old, eight to ten times a day. He's growing a few inches every week. So Maybe, yeah. I should Seriously. measure him right now and then yeah. measure him again at the end of the summer. I should do it. Uh, Lexi, now we have a policy where at the end of dinner it's like you have to wait 10 minutes and then see if you're actually still hungry because my yeah, so word, much <laughs> he can eat so much. So God made this world with human beings who needed to eat and not only to eat every once in a while, we're not like a crocodile eating a gazelle and then digesting it for two weeks. We are dependent on daily bread. We're in fact even instructed by the Lord to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And while that certainly has biblical theological implications for Christ, the true manna from heaven, our true bread, it certainly doesn't mean less than that we are dependent upon our Father for the food on our table every day. So Lexi, kicking us off here, what are some implications of that, that God made this kind of world where people needed to eat, needed their daily bread? What does that tell us? What kind of things do we learn from that? That we're creatures. I think that's my biggest takeaway, is that we we can't, like, ascend above this need for food just like we can't ascend above the need for sleep you know we we live in a culture that has a lot of fad diets that are just honestly not that great for you because they're they're kind of wanting to make you leave your physical body and your physical needs and only need like certain food groups or only need x amount of calories or only need i don't know food from one era specifically i guess um and so they're kind of setting they're kind of setting you up for failure in a way because they're kind of making you into a God instead of being a creature that's actually dependent upon the Lord for all of these good gifts, all of the food groups, you know, at least that's, that's how I approach this topic. When you have me think through like, why are we not going to be vegan anymore? <laughs> Lexi. Oh man, that was, those were some dark times. So that was really big for me is like, I'm a creature is why is because I need these things. God made the food groups. They're good. He talked about those food groups in the Bible. He talked about them in the land as like a reward for his people. So we shouldn't necessarily be shunning this creaturely need. It's a good thing we should lean into and be thankful for. And you just, with our hyper like nutrition obsessed, Father Capon talks, there's a specific word he uses in the Supper of the Lamb. Maybe you remember it where he basically says our culture is so obsessed with peace that we no longer know how to feast because we're not willing to put up with a little indigestion. And I think that mm -hmm. strikes the chord so much when you think about like, and I, and I understand there are actual health issues and people I think in good ways can steward their nutrition and take dominion for a time. But if you're like hyper obsessed with anti-inflammatory diets, because you think maybe some year in the distant future, you might get cancer you're a little too obsessed with peace and you're not necessarily willing to accept all of the Lord's good gifts. Yeah, no, there's a lot there. And actually I think there, there are a lot of things that we're probably going to unpack as we continue to talk about this. But um, even, you know, as I'm thinking about what does this tell us about 
let's I mean, what does this tell us about God that he made a world like that where he said, pray like this, give us this day our daily bread, where he said that he was going to I mean, God could do whatever God wants to do. Yeah. He could have made us fo- <laughs> he could have made us photosynthesize. God yeah. could have made us all slightly green and just go out in the sun and I, what it, I mean, it's cool that we get our vitamin D that yeah. way and there's lots of benefits from it, but God didn't make us plants plants full of chlorophyll and, you know, photosynthesizing. And this also totally dismantles the idea that we can be breatharians. Oh, I breatharians. just realized that. But those are like oh, really real niche type weird nutritional fads out Have there. Have you guys heard of breatharians? <laughs> let, let me just just in case you didn't. This is great. This is quality content. Breatharians are people who claim that they just get all of the nutrients they need from the sunlight and the atmosphere and breathing and the energies. <laughs> and so they tend to be kind of hippies and they will claim ridiculous things like that they've gone 600 days without eating food or you know whatever. And they're very healthy looking people who clearly at night after the Instagram live is over, go to their cupboard and eat some crackers. Or oh, no, the ones I've seen look really emaciated. They're probably also very unhealthy people. Anyway. Talking to demons or something, who knows? The fact that God made that world, there are there are at least a few through lines from, or are there are at least a few, um, like to use Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's terminology, like when he talked about the pleasures of this world being like, sunbeams coming through the hole in a garden shed that you put your eye to, you follow the light beam back up to the sun. Mm-hmm. I think this this is actually a gift that God made us dependent on food and that he made a world with food. Yeah. And it teaches us some things about God that are particularly interesting and compelling about God to me. That God made a world where we depend on da- on him for our daily bread every day. That tells us, I think first, that that we are to be a people who are reminded continually, like multiple times a day, of our contingency, mm-hmm. that we are dependent, that we're not like little gods floating around, self-sufficient. Like God has no. this, you know, can, God has this attribute of a seity, self-existence. He's all, you know, he, uh, he, he doesn't need anything. God doesn't depend on anything. God doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to bake bread. And, you know, he doesn't get hungry. Mm-hmm. And he made us so that the rumbling in our stomach, you know, by 9 a.m. in the morning or by noon or by 6 p.m. was supposed to remind us of our dependency, which is like, it's interesting when you think about fasting as a spiritual mm-hmm. discipline. Yeah, yeah, it is. Being a reminder of our creatureliness and our dependency on God. You used the word profligate, though, a minute mm-hmm. ago. And I think that's a good word. Tell us what you mean by that. That What, what does that tell us about God? You, you said that just that he wants us to be like he's given us all of these good tastes and flavors and different kinds of meats and different herbs and different variety of heirloom vegetables that taste slightly different from one another. He wants us to experience those things. And to me, that's part of the travesty of the of the modern food industry is we have like doled our taste and that does not reflect God accurately because he is more creative and more kind and more generous to us than that. There's Annie Dillard talks about just like, look at the trees in the fall where God is just like allow. He didn't have to make it so that every single leaf falls on the ground. That mm-hmm. seems wasteful, but it's not, it's, it's showing just like how generous he is with his resources, with his, with wanting us to see beauty in the world. Like there's yeah. and food communicates in a similar way to us. Yeah, food communicates. That's interesting. Food communicates this whole death by living kind of thing and mm-hmm. life by death. 
that, you know, the Christian gospel, of course, is that we find our life in Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection, that he was the seed who went into the ground and died and came up and bore fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. And whenever you eat anything, you're eating the result of thousands of deaths. Yeah. Like when you eat a, a bite of the hamburger that we had tonight, we are eating the death of a thousand blades of grass. Not just the death of the of the cow, the beef, but the death of the 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 rich compost of the soil, mm-hmm. which is generations yeah. of plants growing up and dying and composting and nitrogen being reintroduced to the soil and bacteria and fungi and and God knew all that when he made the world. Yeah, he knew it. He knew it. And it just like when you think about lab grown food, mm. it's trying to offer nourishment without gospel. Yeah, that's right. You know, like you can't have life without death. It's trying to grow it all in a test tube. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when we talk about Christian ethics of food and of food production and, uh, you know, and even this this has implications for things like IVF and mm. surrogacy and things like that that maybe we'll talk about in another episode. Or we, we might have mentioned that in the fertility episode. I can't remember. But a lot of these instincts that really, uh, I'm using a lot of Lewis inferences today, but like the NICE in that hideous strength, mm-hmm. they, when we give into that technocratic immortality through technology, like becoming gods through technology, mm-hmm. removing all of these rich lessons that God made, actually what happens is we find out that we can't do it. Yeah. Like guarantee you that it won't work in the long run. Yeah. To, to get away from the soil and the earth and the growing no. things and the sun and the, the rain and the plants and the animals and the whole ecosystem you know, but another thing that I think that we learn about God or that God intends for us to understand from this fact of our needing daily bread is that human beings, and you've, you've already alluded to this, but human beings need more than brute nourishment. Yeah. Like there's this moment in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader where uh, it's in the Chronicles of Narnia and the Pevensey children are sucked into this painting of a ship on the sea and along with their cousin, Eustace Clarence Scrub, who almost deserved it, one of the greatest opening lines of any book of all time, Eustace is kind of like this product of these modern parents, modern parenting, uh, all of this like scientific parenting stuff. And he's a turd like that. <laughs> he's totally a turd. Uh, it, you know, but by the end of the book, won't give it away. Go read the book. Read it 10 times. It's an amazing book. Uh, and Eustace gets redeemed just like Edmund did his first time in Narnia. But they, they end up back in Narnia, and they they get sucked into this painting, fall in the ocean, and, and then hoisted onto this ship, which turns out to be the ship of Prince Caspian from the book Caspian. And uh, when they get on the ship, they're kind of like shivering in cold, and Caspian orders the, the, the shipmates to go get them, like, I think it's mulled wine or some, like, warm wine drink, and offers it to all of them. <laughs> And Eustace is like, does anybody have any plump trees, vitaminized nerve food? (laughs) He doesn't want to drink the wine. He wants this like food in a pill. And the thing is, God made a world where human beings will not be satisfied with that. It will not work. What does that tell us? I think think to me, when I think about that, uh, it communicates three things to me off the top of my head. One, faithfulness to the kitchen. It requires work to cook. (laughs) 
Yeah. Because you're not just putting bland, correct, unflavored oatmeal in front of everybody three meals a day. It communicates that we should have some sort of skill set, some sort of like dominion within ourselves to procure this food on our own. And it also communicates that we need community, like that food is if if it's like there's nothing interesting about you and me sitting down and popping a pill for dinner. Yeah. Like there's nothing to anchor us there to then have conversation and to foster that relationship. But with food, it totally does. Mm, yeah. So those are the three things that I, it, I think of. If tomorrow a scientist, let's let's say his name was Krill Lates, came <laughs> up with the technology mm-hmm. where you could give everybody in our family a one easy to swallow pill mm-hmm. and it would meet all of their nourishment needs for mm-hmm. the day. And it was cheaper than cooking, mm-hmm. no time anymore. Would you do it? No, it, it just, it doesn't, it's anti-Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit into our worldview because we're not Gnostics. That's right. And Father Capon talks about that exact thing. It, that book is so prophetic because he he was saying like, imagine a future where a man and a wife have this green dried substance that they just pack into these little pills and they can take those instead. And he's basically saying like, we're losing all of the glory of food when we do that. And part of it too is like, part of it, I really do think it's just, we're so fast paced that we don't have the habits to be faithful and homeward oriented. I was reading in the beginning of I think it's called like a full moon feast or something. I can't remember. It's a cookbook I'm reading right now, but she was talking about how typically in the past, if cultures are intact, they don't need cookbooks. Yeah. They're passing down skills one to another and there's not a need for cookbooks. But she was talking about how when you look at most of what modern cookbooks are about, most of them are about efficiency, like how to spend the least amount of time in the kitchen how to feed the most number of people with the least amount of money possible. And that's not like, it's not passing on a rich culture in a way. Yeah. Um, Not that there aren't times when you do need to do things quickly for a large amount of people and very frugally. Right. But um, that just really got me thinking And her, her her observation. And this is from a total unbeliever. She was like, we don't want to be faithful to our kitchens anymore. Mm. And I was like, that's so true because we're busy being faithful to our boss in the cubicle. Mm, or being faithful to the salon or being faithful to, you know, our friends or yeah. So it really does take like a, a brute determination. I feel like to cook three meals a day and snacks seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, all your life, you know, and it's like at the center of the Psalm 128. And I think you could go Psalm 127 and Psalm 128 together at the center of the household. That's pictured there is this blessed godly household where God is giving children and they're, you know, they're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. At the center of that house is a kitchen table. And hmm. that kitchen table is defined by this wife who is seated there. Your wife will be a fruitful vine stretched around your table there. Mm-hmm. That's at the heart of it. Yeah. It's this womanly, feminine glory that she is the glory of man, as 1 Corinthians 11 says. She's a crown on humanity. She is iconic of humanity. Why? Because the woman is what takes all of these raw ingredients. It's the woman is the is what takes all of this, 
you know, takes the soil and the garden and the, the, the pasture and the livestock and the milk and the, and turns it into cheese, cheese and crackers and bread and, and meat and, you know, uh, slow cooked, tender pork shoulder and Mm -hmm. like all of these glorious things that says something that says something about the glory of godly femininity Mm -hmm. says something about the glories that god has hidden in the world Mm -hmm. for us to demonstrate our image bearing dominion taking nature in Mm -hmm. discovering and cultivating and and like you said there's a fifth commandment element to this too where food necessarily is part of honoring your father and mother because recipes don't get reinvented every generation. Recipes, th- this art and discipline of cooking is something that's been honed to a knife's edge over thousands of years of human history with tens of thousands and millions upon millions of you know m- women whose name we will never know yeah. who figured stuff out, optimized how to make the bone broth, how to make rice taste the best, how to braise the meat, how to properly sear a steak, how to, what to feed the livestock so that they tasted really good. Mm -hmm. Like we're benefiting, we're inheriting, or we ought to be inheriting this rich, embodied, anti-Gnostic, earthy glory that God has hidden in the world from our great, 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 great grandmothers and their great, 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 great grandmothers. And instead, what this secularist impulse is to be, you know, because we think we're gods that can live Mm -hmm. on pills... We want to reject all that inheritance yeah. and just say, "Give it to me frozen and in a box. <laughs> give it, give me HelloFresh. Like what we will it? never be sponsored by HelloFresh." I'm sorry. What was it you said about the nutritional dude at the gym? He wanted you to do like a consult or something. Oh yeah, he wanted me to do. I was getting a gym membership, and so they run you through the whole ringer trying to sell you every possible thing under the sun instead of just giving you the gym membership. And. uh <laughs> He was like, you know, do you want personalized workouts? Do you want blah, 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 blah? And it was like, do you want us to do a, you know, get you a dietitian? And I was like, no, I have a wife. <laughs> I have a wife who loves me and cooks three meals a day. Or even just like the gross protein drinks. Oh, like, I was just I'm glad eat you said an that. egg. <laughs> just eat an egg, people. It's cheaper it's like, and you don't have to rely on the factory for it. If you ever watch a YouTube video, you've seen oh, this my like, gosh, it's... do you want healthy nutrition on the go? Try cachava. <laughs> We've ground 67 different plants to powder, and we'll have you shake it up in a tiny plastic cup with a steel ball inside. (laughs) And instead of having joy in your life, you'll be able to drink (laughs) cachava. It'll taste like... Well, okay, so I think that's the other thing, too, is when I was processing a lot of this years ago with the whole veganism thing is I was realizing I felt shame over like certain just craving certain foods. Uh And And I had to realize like, God, God made that food and he made me to crave it. The craving's not bad. <laughs> it's <Yes>. not sin. <laughs> yeah. But that's what that's what can happen with a lot of these diets again is like, I don't know. They just they almost want you to like asceticism again. They want you to yeah. be able to ascend yeah. beyond this. Yeah, Gnosticism against the body, this doctrine of demons. In the beginning the body's bad. of nourishing tradition, Sally Fallon looks at well, first of all, there's been no such thing in the history of the world as actual vegans before we had factories. So yeah, like there was more vegetarianism. Yeah. But there wasn't, there was not true veganism because it essentially was not possible. It wasn't possible, but she was talking about if, if we look at these ultra severe groups that were like 
dieting, not dieting, but that they were really strict with their eating habits, I guess you could say. They yeah. all said the reason they were strict with them was because they were trying to attain self-righteousness. And it to me, like that was what just sealed the deal for me was like, I shouldn't be trying to earn anything with the way I'm eating. Yeah. I should be accepting it as a good gift from the Lord and giving thanks for it. And God says, that's what sanctifies it for my body. That's right. <laughs> Not and, yeah. how and, it was sourced or, you know. Yeah. And this is a helpful corrective for probably a lot of people, even in our camp that care deeply about yeah. nutrients and nutrient density and organic and getting things that are, you know, not genetically modified by mad scientists who hate God yeah. and all that sort of thing. There's a healthy corrective. I don't want you to hear us and think, Wow, they're they're basically saying if I ever eat the double cheeseburger at McDonald's, I'm a <laughs> sinner. And I would say you should read Food Catholic, Confessions of a Food Catholic by Douglas Wilson, and you should read The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts by Joe Rigney. And also, thank you, Joe Rigney, for shouting out Brighthearth, actually, this this last week. I, I promise we did not reference all these <laughs> yeah. things in this book because of that, but yeah, we knew this it was, was already coming, coming up, so it was kind of funny. Use. Mr. Rigney, if you're listening, thank you. Great book. It was a light bulb book for us some years back. And one of the things that you should take away from from these books, or hopefully from this show and, and our time in the kitchen on Bright Hearth, is that we're not saying if you ever eat anything from a box, or if you go through the fast food drive through on a Sunday, you know, on a on a Saturday afternoon with your kids, um, because you're hanging out at the park and talking with your friends, and you ran out of time. Here's what you do when you get the double cheeseburger: you you open it from its wrapping. <laughs> You bow your head over it, you praise the Lord for this double cheeseburger that he's given you, and you eat it with thankful heart. Make sure you're honoring your father and mother, you know, as you go about your day, and hey, you'll live long in the land. Mm -hmm. Because we, we're not saved by our organic food eating. We, we obviously think that it's better to work to recover some of these arts for lots of reasons, but at the same time... We want to avoid the ditch of um, food fussing. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk yeah, about that fussing. later. Food fussing. Was that in Rigney's book or did we it get that It was one of term? the two. I can't remember that one. I, okay. And I actually preached the book of Colossians years ago at our church because there was just some food fussing going on in various corners of the church and some like table fellowship divisions like oh we can't we can't go eat with this family because we have this special dietary thing and not like allergies or some crazy thing that we should all accommodate but like these uh you know boutique we, boutique allergies you I know think is what Wilson calls and them. and just preferences really at the end of the day <clears throat> and yeah. being like well I guess half our church can't eat with the other half of our church because we all made up this new like food <laughs> customs and laws and it can end up being the same category of sin that the Judaizers were committing in not eating with the Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't follow the ceremonial dietary mm -hmm. code. Mm -hmm. And so we need to take care that in any direction we don't fall into that, that we don't fall into it in the direction of organic or we don't fall into it in the direction of whatever it is. Yeah, because like we already talked about a couple of episodes ago, well, at least for us, this is how I come to peace with it is we're post-millennial. I know eventually the food industry will be redeemed. Agricultural industry will be redeemed. I don't need to freak out about it and fix it all right now. I just need to focus on my duties in the here and now. That is somebody else's vocation to deal with. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so. Absolutely. I had um, noticed some of these things going on in our church and Paul in Colossians 
really helps us think these things through in how we relate to uh, the temptations to idolatry and food fussing and things like that. And I'll, I'm going to read a quote from Joe Rigney's book in a second here, but but let me frame it like this. What we're talking about in this episode so far, that we need more than nourishment, that God made made it such that part of the art and discipline of homemaking is raising and feeding immortal souls with mortal bodies that need food mm-hmm. and that have taste buds at the end of their tongue and enjoy textures and different flavors and that you are genuinely serving them well when you feed them delicious, tasty food that mm-hmm. you prayed over and provided with love, and you are genuinely doing them a disservice if you can if you consistently feed your people bad food that tastes bad, that's mush, <laughs> and just tell them, hey, but it has all the calories you need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So we're saying that there are glories in the world that God has made and that he intended for us to enjoy them. But one of the things that happens anytime you have a glorious thing in the world, this good gift of taste and texture, it comes with the temptation to idolatry because our hearts are idol factories. And it's important that you see that that's the problem, right? That that's where the problem lies. The problem is not in the food. The problem is not in the Queen Amon pastry with the buttery center and the crunchy, crispy, glazed sugar crust. The problem is in the fallen heart, mm-hmm. not in the giver of the good gift, and it's not in the gift itself. Yeah, the, the sin isn't in the pastry or in the steak. God gave us taste buds not to be a snare, but to actually be a gift. And so when we come to this temptation of idolatry that is inevitable, and if you get, you know, if you get serious about cooking, someone along the lines will, will accuse you of being a legalist or being something along those lines, right? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> someone will someone will feel condemned for making a muffin muffins out of a box, even though you didn't put that on them because they know I you're making to them me, from scratch. And this is the problem: is I'm thinking of that differently. I'm thinking of it in terms of it's my vocation. I'm growing in excellence. I believe in absolute truth, which means <laughs> one type of food is absolutely better than another. Yeah, but it's not a salvation issue. It is right. an issue of I'm growing in excellence. It's it's a different topic. Yeah, <laughs> but and, most people will not think that. And when clearly. the when the when the proverbs say that it's better to yes, you know, eat I like, yeah. a dinner of herbs where there is peace and joy than a, a feast of fat things where there is strife. The pro, the author of the proverbs is giving you multiple categories. He's yeah. There's 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 a, a bad category which would be a great dinner with with strife. And then it'd be good to have even a simple dinner of herbs with peace and joy and a happy wife and happy kids and yeah. lovely family. But you know what would be the best of all? And the proverb isn't denying this, the feast and the joy yeah. and the peace. Yeah. But as soon as you make that feast, the temptation to idolatry arrives. And with the temptation to idolatry comes this urge, this human instinct, to pick up the butter knife of asceticism to mm-hmm. try and face down Goliath yeah. of idolatry. We were, I don't know if you remember this, but we were, no, you wouldn't remember this. <laughs> we were at a pastor's and wives retreat on the beach. It was gorgeous. The sun was going down. The weather was perfect. There oh, yeah. was freely flowing booze and amazing food. Mm-hmm. And it was just lovely. And one of the wives danced on up there and was like, is anything gluten free here? (laughs) And my first thought was just like, 
How boring are you that we're in this beautiful setting and you're concerned about the gluten-free food on the table? <laughs> like, And hopefully she had celiacs. <laughs> hopefully it wasn't yeah. a... Well, no, yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing is the people that I know who really have that don't even ask the question because already they've already prepared. brought their yeah, own they're food. They're ready for it. <laughs> it's like in, no one's asking, do you have any insulin? <laughs> right, if they have the type. But it was just like this this beautiful scene and just yeah. this weird moment that just felt totally out of place and like, okay. <laughs> so as soon as you start making all the glories, you're going to have this instinct to asceticism and to fight the idolatry by basically saying, I am going to feed my people the, the oatmeal with no flavor for three meals a day. And just give them enough calories. And here's one of the reasons why we would say don't do that. Asceticism isn't the answer. I'm going to read a a passage from the things of earth that I thought really connected this, and uh, it actually ties to Colossians as well. Rigney writes, Given the persistence of this threat to true worship of God, one way to address idolatry is to seek to thin out creation, to hold it loosely like a hot potato, and to be wary of its delights and pleasures. We recognize the potency of God's gifts, so we tread lightly, sticking to the shallows and refusing to plunge into the ocean of earthly pleasures. This suspicion of creation can grow into an outright rejection of creation, a call for full abstinence from God's gifts, or at least certain gifts, usually those centered on bodily pleasures. Paul addresses this type of asceticism directly in Colossians 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." To pursue holiness by stiff-arming created pleasures appears wise. Ascetic religion and severity to the body may impress lots of people, but their value in promoting godliness is null. The reason should be obvious. Sin is not in the stuff. Sin resides in human hearts, and thinning out creation just makes us thin idolaters. We exchange indulgent sins for ascetic ones, but rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic doesn't alter the ship's path. The flesh is still steering the boat, and a true course of correction will require something more fundamental than a rejection of God's gifts, end quote. And so what Rigney's pointing at is, again, like I said, the sin is not in the stuff. When, if, if you respond to the danger of food idolatry with asceticism and saying, well, then I'm just going to take care to make sure that there's a, as little flavor as possible in the food, you're making the same mistake as the husband and wife because they're worried about the the temptation to worship sex and sexual pleasure to be uncreative and you know have as little sex as possible in with the lights off in as uncreative a way as possible rather than seeking to honor and please the other and and really throw themselves into the thing you know mm-hmm. so the mother at the kitchen counter and the mother at the kitchen stove who's uh saying I'm going to thin out the creation here because I'm worried. And and you might say, well, I've never thought about it in those terms. I'm not fighting idolatry. Well, maybe you have. Maybe you've thought, you know, I can't spoil my kids. Oh, what if I give them the food they like? What if I make them dessert a couple times a week that's really tasty? Won't it spoil them? Which <laughs> Me is, and Kelly yes. should do a whole episode on sweets. Let's we should get Kelly on, on here to talk about out. sweets. 
<laughs> mm. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. We no, like sweets in our house. <laughs> you're good. Uh, I think I think that this is one of the ways that this ascetic impulse does show up, though, is, is in mom's thinking, like, my husband loves bacon and steak, and he loves the meat, and he loves the potatoes, and he loves As he the, should. And so, but I'm worried about X, you know, I'm worried about, you know, his health, or I'm worried about all these other things. And here's the thing. <laughs> God... Like there, there, there's a there's a way that food companies and big big food and big agriculture and big government have kind of like hacked our taste buds with salt and sugar and artificial things, but generally God made things that are good for you taste good. Yeah. Fat is good. Yeah. Sugar is good. Mm-hmm. Salt is good. Mm-hmm. Carbohydrates good are good. Fruit. Fruit good. is good. Even with the seeds, you carnivorous eater, eaters. Carnivorous. <laughs> you carnivorous <laughs> eaters. Oh, uh, no, but I do think there's an impulse there to say, I'm not going to spoil my kids. Oh, yeah. you know, what if I make my husband this, you know, glorious feast that he he loves? And, and I think it's interesting to see how that backfires, though. Because guess what happens they if you end feed up you? eating all the crappy That's food because they're hungry. She knew it. She knew where I was going. Guess what the husband? And I'm not saying I'm not justifying this. Guess where the husband goes to get his food when his wife makes thin gruel, thinning out creation food at home, health food, quote unquote. And it's not health food, by the way. You know, tries to feed him kale salad and quinoa for dinner. Guess Which where he's going? I love kale and quinoa salad. He's he's driving. He's going to Maverick on the way home. Like I need to get some gas. You know what? Maybe I will grab one of those pork rib bundles they got under that hot light over there. That does look pretty good. Mama doesn't need to know about that. <laughs> and I'm not trying to get husbands in trouble right now. I'm actually trying to get wives to repent. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk more about this on the hospitality yeah, episode because I do want to talk about hospitality to husbands. Yeah, that's that is true. That is true. Um, That's more on Pastor Wilson talks in Food Catholic, I think it's in John 6, yeah, where he's talking about we shouldn't be laboring for food that perishes, but for the food that leads to eternal life. And that's, mm, that's so typically good. what happens is like we're so busy laboring to keep up all these food laws that we don't realize at the end of the day we're violating the biggest commandment of loving God more than the food, you know? Yes. So that was a helpful verse for me. Yeah, that is so good. Well, is there anything else that you that comes to mind on this topic before we wrap up? Uh, that I know of. Mm-hmm. Okay, not that you know of. That's that's good, good, good. So if you guys have any questions uh, about the kitchen as we begin this series in the kitchen, the best way to actually have us see your stuff is through our Patreon. Um, because we we just we don't have a ton of we have a lot of irons in the fire, it's a lot of different projects. Now. I so, deleted some social media, at least for the week, so yeah. I can get things under control so here. we really don't always see messages in other channels. We don't have a lot of time to answer them. But we do set aside time every week to answer questions from our Patreon. So there are a few tiers you can sign up to support the show. Help us cover the costs of things like we have a guy in our church do our editing for us and you know help save some of the time so we can actually spend it on content and uh, making sure that we're consistent with the show. Patreon.com slash BrightHearth, and there's a link in the description, is where you can find those channels. And we do give out some fun uh, rewards with the with Patreon tiers. I think the $10 tier has uh, the Feed the Patriarchy mug, which is like 1950s-style 
feeding the patriarchy-themed mug. We got a t-shirt and things like that going on there. But we do answer questions. We also release a special episode every week uh, called In the Kitchen, ironically with this episode, uh, where we talk more practically, write out book lists from the episodes, give more advice for places to go with uh, tips, and also answer, like I said, listener questions. So let me leave you in this episode with one final thought, one final beam of sunlight coming through the garden shed up to the glories of God. And this is, you know, something that uh, I saw a few years ago with the help of some pastor or theologian who I've since forgotten who it was that even introduced me to this, but it stuck with me, I thought, as one of these glories that God has hidden in food in the world. And that's with the birth of Christ. When Christ was born, as prophesied, he was born in the city of David called Bethlehem. And he was laid in a manger in Bethlehem, which is a manger is a feeding trough. And for us English speakers, we kind of pass right over that. But what's fascinating about that little detail is that Bethlehem literally means house of bread. That's what that little town means. It means house of bread. And Jesus is the bread of life, as John, as he tells us in the Gospel of John. He's the bread that comes down from heaven. And so even in the birth of Christ, you see this picture of God the Father giving us his son as bread and putting him in a feeding trough in the house of bread. It's like he's saying, here is a meal for humanity. So that every time we come to the table of communion and we look back over our shoulder at the cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed for us, like bread and wine, every time we eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of Christ, we are commemorating this fact, this fact that food itself is meant to preach, which is that God made a world that all of the good gifts that he gives us to satisfy our earthly desires point to much greater and surpassingly good satisfaction in himself. And so may all of your food, may the produce of your kitchen, May the meals you share around your dinner table, may the desserts that you make for kids who more often than not are probably less grateful than they ought to be, may the feasts that you put before husbands of rich fat and stout beers and whatever else their hearts desire, may they find satisfaction in them, but may they ultimately serve as sunbeams that point each one of those immortal souls up to our good Father, the Father of lights from whom comes down every good and perfect gift. So thanks for listening to this episode of Bright Hearth. Uh, We hope that you'll join us on our Patreon channel. And with that, we'll see you next week.